Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with J.P. Pomare. J.P. Pomare's debut novel, Call Me Evie, won the 2019 Nio Marsh Award for Best New Novel and established Joshua as a gripping new voice in literary thrillers. Today, Josh is joining me to discuss his latest novel, In the Clearing. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I want to pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, and the Great Conversations podcast is a chance to hear more of these discussions. On a hot, humid Australian day, a van waits by an isolated road as an eight-year-old girl disembarks from her school bus. As the bus disappears, the van accelerates, its occupants dragging the girl inside and drugging her into unconsciousness. The young girl is being taken to the clearing, and she is to be the 11th of 12, the children of the mother. Freya lives in seclusion, defiant in her freedom and independence, but also captive to her secrets. When the news reports a kidnapped child, her mind immediately races to her son and fears for his safety. Join me as we discover J.P. Pomares in the clearing. My name is Andrew Popel and I'm joined on the line by J.P. Pomare. Josh's debut novel, Call Me Evie, won the 2019 Nio Marsh Award for Best New Novel and established Josh as a gripping new voice in literary thrillers. Today, I have him to, here to discuss his new book, In the Clearing. Welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on Final Draft. No worries. Thanks for having me on the show. Look, it is, it is an absolute pleasure. Um, this, is, this is a very... A very exciting book, and I've I keep describing it to people as a page turner because it it sort of sort of got its hooks in me. And oh, let's I'm, I want to take people into the clearing. It's a hot, humid Australian summer day, and a van waits by an isolated road as an eight-year-old girl disembarks from her school bus. As the bus disappears, the van accelerates, its occupants dragging the girl inside and drugging her into unconsciousness. The young girl is being taken to the clearing. And she is about to be the eleventh of the twelve children of the mother. Um, so begins in the clearing. Uh, it occurred to me as I was writing that intro, Josh. I should I should perhaps put a content warning on our conversation here. You have written this incredible book, but it does include some you know some really sort of graphic uh, discussion of of child kidnapping and abusive children, and that can be tricky for some people. So I, I'll just let people know that that's what the discussion is about. But you've also crafted this incredible novel. You were inspired to write In the Clearing by the story of the family, a cult that that operated in Australia through the 60s, 70s and 80s. Now, the story of the family is shocking. And like so many shocking stories, it also has like this level of popular knowledge. And I guess people think they understand something from what they've seen in the news. How do you you go about taking a story like that, that has perhaps some level of people's uh, awareness and making it meaningful both for yourself and for the reader? Yeah, well, the first thing I made sure of, the first decision you know I made was that this was a fictional, uh, a counterfictional story, um, and so names and places and everything have been fictionalised. People, you know, there's only one person who is identifiably inspired by a particular uh, real life person, although the, you know there's, there's significant changes were made as well. Um, so that's, that was the very first sort of decision I made was 
um, how I was going to tackle this in a way where I could have the freedom of um, of fiction to uh, yeah, to, to invent mm. and to find the most compelling story, but also retain some sort of identifiable elements of, of the family cult. Um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, in the writing process and trying to devise this story, I was, I was, I think it was unlocked by the structure. Like I had a really great structure um, in mind that that was the only way I could really tell the story. I had um, a setting that was different to the original cult setting um, that was based on uh, a place called Warrandyte, uh, north of, an hour north of Melbourne City. Um, and so I had all the sort of elements in place and it was just a matter of kind of finding the balance um, between fact and fiction. What was it about the story of the family, though, that, that gripped you, that, that made you think this is, this is a topic that needs to be explored? Because, I mean, of course, we're going back some you know, 30 plus years when the family were, were sort of uncovered. Um, yeah. But uh, that's sort of ground that's been, been trodden over. What did you see in the story? I mean, I think, I think for the most part, the, the, the main appeal was the fact that in the New Age cult era, you know, so um, we're talking generally, you know, the mid-60s or early 60s through the sort of the, the mid-80s, um, we, we have a cult that was led and founded by a woman, which is really uncommon. Um, in fact, I'd say it's, it's probably the most, you know, in terms of my research and what I discovered, I'd say it was probably the most famous or notorious cult that was founded by a woman. Um, not only that, you know, it's right in my on my back doorstep, and and it's uh, you know it was at Lake Eildon, which is about an hour outside of the city, Melbourne City, where I live. Um, yeah, so it was probably those two things. I think the character, or the the real life person, Anne Hamilton Byrne. She, the fact she found and led this cult and the fact she was described, um, you know, almost like an enchantress, you know, like just the language that many of her followers used to describe her and the way that this cult also accumulated members from the, the academic world, the medical world, you know, these are, these people were all largely um, upper middle class, very sophisticated people. So what, what was it about her that attracted these people um so yeah i think it was i mean it's just the cult my my agent says to me you know when i'm trying to think of ideas she's like write the idea that excites you most and i think that's that's what this that's what happened here like i was very um excited about this story and very excited about the idea of this person who could pluck out the the greatest minds and you know in the psychological um you know, in terms of the profession and, and bring them into this environment where they were overdosing children on LSD and, and performing, you know, really enormously inhumane things um, on, on, on its members. So, yeah, it was, it was just a story that really excited me for those reasons. I want to get into so many of the things you have to say about belief and the way, the way that operates, but it's probably important to to frame the story a little bit more here because there are twin stories, Amy's and Freya's. Amy lives in the clearing. She's she's present to the abuse. She's subject to its power. Freya lives in seclusion, defiant in her freedom and in her independence, but she's also captive to her secrets. These are both women that are subject to control, and I wondered 
what you wanted to say about the role of women as as victims, but also perpetrators of violent control. Yeah, so I mean, much of the story is about inherited violence. Something I don't go into is Anne Hamilton Burns' upbringing, uh, or, or or my character Adrian's upbringing. Um, and so we don't know why she is like how she is, but uh, but then you know there's that that concept of inherited violence or breaking the chain um, of domestic violence or whatever, however you want to describe it. I think control is the very first step, and this was something I wrote about in um, my debut, uh, Call Me Evie. Um, control, you know, is is the very first step of um, a you know unstable home environment or domestic environment it's um control gives birth to to the violence in many cases um and so yeah the, these I, I think uh amy so we've got freya um who's one narrative is sort of her life and she's one protagonist and the other protagonist is amy who's in the in the clearing as you mentioned so they both have or they both sort of have this control over their I mean, Amy is being controlled by the cult and, you know, the views of the cult, whereas um, Freya has this real control over her son, Billy, um, to, to the point that it's almost stifling and she sees it as protecting him and it becomes evident, you know, why she's like that. You know, she did lose uh, a previous child um, and, you know, there's been news reports of a girl who was kidnapped and things, so she does become quite controlling. Um but yeah, I, I do, you know, I am fascinated by the way we, the different sort of forces we issue to control other people and how they manifest and what that means and does to the psychology of those under our control as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point you make and I can't really go too much further without sort of heading into spoilers. <laughs> we are, we're not going to go there. I would not do that to the reader. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Suffice to say that control is a central sort of theme of the, of the story. I was interested in what you said just there about not wanting to go too much into Adrian's sort of background and Adrian's origins. Is there, is there a danger if you explore too far back that, that you as a writer might move into uncomfortable territory where the explanation may, may begin to excuse or maybe offer even just offer answers that you can't reasonably offer? It's a really good point, not one I'd, I'd considered too much, um, to be honest. But that is, yeah, that is a really good point. That um, you know, I uh, I think it, I think it was for me it was a stylistic um, or, or sort of you know story based decision. Um, I I didn't think I had the room. I thought it wasn't. There's no point dwelling on her past. She is what she is. But you know we. Uh, I sometimes I do think how I would write this as a, a if I were to write a sequel, the stories I would potentially explore, and that would be one that I think I would explore. But you're right in saying that, like when we do seek to humanise the villains, there is this risk of excusing their behaviour or dwelling on you know passing the blame. But I think part of great fiction is creating characters that do. Um, you know that there is traces of why they are the way they are in their behaviour, and the origin story of villains is always, you know, um, as we can see with the recent Joker movie, for instance. You know, the origins of of villains are equally as um, entertaining, if not, you know, enlightening as the origins of our 
of our heroes as well. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't really answer that soon. But I'd say at the time of writing, it was a decision I made purely uh, and simply for the sake of the story. You're absolutely right. I mean, these these stories move into the area that we say is compelling, uh, undeniably entertaining. But then you, you you've sort of touched on the Joker movie where there was a huge conversation around whether it, it should still then be told. And and look, one thing you make very clear in in the clearing. Uh, is the power of telling stories within the clearing. Stories have the power to shape reality, as Amy and the other children, they learn duty and devotion to their mother whilst fearing the outside world. But we can also see the way stories can be manipulated. And I wondered how that made you feel as a writer and also as a writer confronting such horrific subject matter. I mean, what does it does it have any toll on you telling those stories? Um. Yeah, I mean, there's a little, little bit compact. I think I would say, I mean, I've had this before, and maybe like, maybe I'm like a sociopath. I don't know. I don't feel like I feel too much in the writing as much as I do when I read other people's work. Mm. Um, if that makes sense, because you kind of build this up layer upon layer. I have, I mean, I think with Edie, it was, I did feel there was a moment where I was like, in tears, you know, when I was writing, I felt so bad for one of the characters. Um, in, in the clearing, for some reason, I didn't really feel that as much when I was writing. I felt pretty sort of strongly, um, you know, I felt sort of uh, anger at times at characters, but I didn't really, I guess I, I, guess I kind of had numbed myself to it because I'd done so much research into the real family and kind of extent that, uh, you know, emotional energy on the real victims. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like, because, yeah, it is, it is a question I've had a lot, and I think maybe I have sort of managed to remove myself enough or numb myself enough that I don't feel quite what the readers feel, um, for better or worse. But, yeah, just in the writing, I think I had already run my race in terms of, reading books like The Family and watching documentaries and being very angry and very sad um, at those points that when I fictionalised it, it didn't seem quite as significant. I think it's an important question to ask, and I ask, I ask you because I think the real people who should be asking this question are our readers and examining the way we respond. And for myself, I mean, I think about a particular scene that you might take from my, my very uh, vague description of it later in the book where we find something out about a particular character and... And this this revelation should be so shocking, but to me it was it was more of an, an interesting thing. And I, I realised that um, uh, for me, I had become so involved in, I guess, part of the puzzle and the mystery that you pose in the clearing. And I sort of wondered, I'm like, why am I not why am I not feeling more this this moment of of revelation and betrayal? Uh, it's something that I like to do in books. I w- wonder, I examine why I'm responding the way I'm responding. And I know, it's, I know I'm having a good book when I'm, do, uh, I'm doing that. I'm asking questions of myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I know what part you're talking about. Um, and, yeah, there's a... I mean, there's, there's betrayal in this book um, at every turn. Mm. Um, and uh, for me... Uh, it's about, you know, moments like that's about, you know, ca- characters 
when you're reading, you you're kind kind of constantly justifying their actions and trying to find plausible explanations for why they're doing certain things. And when a customer, uh, when a um, when a character does something that really genuinely shocks you, um, it only works if you can go back and trace that kind of behaviour and work out why. They are. And and when stuff like that happens, my when I, when I really enjoy these sorts of twists and things um, is when um, you know that it, it's made that character richer and deeper, as opposed to just sort of ruining the character or taking some, taking something away. Um, and that only works, like I said, if there's plausible plausibility and if the traces were there, if, if it was something that you could have figured out on your own, if that makes sense in terms of the overall character. Um, but then, I mean, in real life, when you're portrayed by someone, um, the explanations we come up with are usually like almost absolutes, you know, mm-hmm. like they're just bad, oh, they're just a bad friend or whatever, you know what I mean? Like we tend not to, we sort of take something away from the character. So there's always a risk of that, that when you do have these sorts of twists and betrayals, you don't want people to have that same kind of reaction they would if it was their friend and they're just saying, oh, wait, you know, I clearly misread them, they're just a bad person. You want them to say, oh, okay, it makes sense. This is their true character. This is who they really are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that was, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard again to delve into too, with too much depth, with, you know, without spoiling it. But, um, yeah, it, it, that, that's sort of my take on it. You make a really good point there about the way we as as readers in our in our everyday life we're we're compelled it's a very human thing to to narrativize all aspects so when something happens a betrayal something something bad in our life we we have to tell a story so that it makes sense and both in the clearing and Call Me Evie, you explore the fallibility of perception and of memory and the ways that we make our reality from our experiences and this is this is no small thing these days. We live in a, a fake news world where we're literally told lies, a truth, despite the evidence of our of our senses. Has your writing given you any insight into this process, like this, the way that we do this as humans? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point again. And um, I, I mean, recently at, a, at an event, someone made a comparison I'd never made, and was quite frankly pretty flattered about. Um, by was uh, parallels between uh, my work and like a little bit Black Mirror-esque yeah. um, because I am really interested in contemporary issues and how they sort of, you know, how the world's changing and how often our realities are manipulated by something that's supposed to make us more aware and, and more in tune with our reality. So um you know all technology sort of seems to be you know uh, seems to roll us of, of what we were promised and when i was when i when we are looking at um people's realities i mean anyone can believe anything you know it's everyone has the capacity for, to believe fantastical things when we are you know biologically uh no different to the people who believe the earth flat and believe you know greek mythology and and believe all these these things that we now know are, are largely fantastical so um it's joining cults completely no different you know mm. we 
anyone who might be listening and thinking I would never join a cult is likely deluding themselves because, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have been the one that said, no, the earth's round. Mm. You, you know, you wouldn't have been the one that sort of knew the truth when everyone else um, believed something different. To, to think otherwise is, is again, I, I just think is a sort of grand delusion that we tell ourselves we are somehow smarter than people that find themselves joining cults. And you're right, in, in the current age, we should be, um, we should be extraordinarily uh, critical and, and interrogating of all information we receive because we know now um, how often we are manipulated and how easily we are manipulated and how intellectually lazy we can be about it. So um, I think in, in the clearing, I had a really good opportunity, and likewise, Evie, but certainly in the clearing, I had an opportunity to consider um, and research and explore the psychology of people who do join cults. And my findings um, have been that I, as long as well as everyone I know, um, given the, the right circumstances at the right time, the right place, if you're fed the right information, you would that you would believe in everything and you would participate, um, particularly if you grew up as a child, you know, in, in a cult setting where you are isolated from the outside world um absolutely you would you would believe these i mean uh, the irony of course for the people that may find that a challenging idea or may find themselves directly challenged by that uh how many would then jump online and tweet this challenging thing was said to me and it's ridiculous looking for a small core of like-minded believers to, to pile on and validate them <laughs> yeah correct i mean that's that is that you've you've summed it up in a, in a nutshell that is the the problem you can but you can literally believe anything you want right now because you will find the validation yeah. from someone else who believes something equally as idiotic. Um, and I, you know, I sound like I'm, I'm preaching a little bit here, but this is I am as susceptible to this as everyone else. You know, mm. I have believed ridiculous things in my life, um, and I probably and I almost certainly believe ridiculous things now. So yeah, it, it is. It's just that validation thing, you know. Um, seeking out confirmation of things we already believe um, it strengthens these beliefs and make it much harder for you to sort of come to realisation you might not be right. You're clearly interested in the human psyche, so I want to go a little bit to craft here because it wasn't till my second pass it in the clearing um, that I saw all of these little hooks and moments that you had laid out for readers. And I, I wondered... How hard are you working to get inside the head of your reader? How deliberative is this, or is it uh, a process of the writing and and the editing that just makes it all internally consistent? Um, I think for me, when I'm writing, I mean, I feel like you know, I'm talking specifically about me, but everyone has a different sort of experience of the world, and everyone brings that experience to their writing. Um, for me, I am constantly um, constantly in my own head there's a voice uh, critical and criticising you know what I'm doing where I am who I'm with um, but also doing that with other people what's this person thinking and, and so on and so forth and looking for like uh, these causal kind of relationships between what someone's thinking and how they act and why and um, and that you know that's born out of a, um, a, a deep interest in psychology I didn't study psychology, but I've got a 
sort of amateur acquaintance with psychology and I read um, read on psychology quite a bit and, you know, speak to people about it a bit. And so, um, yeah, when, when, I was, when I was writing in the clearing and when I am writing, um, yeah, so much of it's about developing real characters and getting their heads and so on and so forth. But I think when you are writing in suspense and thrillers, um, there's, you're trying to tap into people's paranoia, you know? You're trying to, you're trying to capture a common experience and conveying it on the page, you know? Uh, it's, it's that thing when you, when you go for a jog down a dark road, what is it that makes that scary? What, why are you scared? What are you thinking about? And if you can present a comparable kind of experience for the character to the reader, you know, it's much, much easier for the reader to inhabit that character's um, head. I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's my, my approach. And whether or not that's a conscious thing, I, I can't say for sure. But when I, I know when I am writing, I am constantly, constantly in my own head, mm. uh, trying to inhabit this character and trying to imagine what I would be feeling. Um, and, you know, we all put a large part of ourselves in all of our characters um, as writers. And so that's the, probably the part I put in is, is that sort of psychological landscape um, as, as a sort of starting point anyway. And I'm going to adapt from there through research and understanding my characters better. But that's always my jumping off point. Yeah, I think I was also thinking, rereading, um, there, were, there were just little things. And I thought, wow, in the first 20 or so pages, you've actually given me all the information, all the clues I need to figure out the twist and and everything that's going to happen, but I just didn't know to look for it, and I just I loved that. Um, I love that. I want to take I want to take a bit of a left turn though, uh, because we have been talking so much about character, and at the beginning you, you discussed a little bit about landscape, about the fact that in the clearing uh, exists in a in a very different landscape to where the the source sort of inspiration came from, but landscape very much suffuses the narrative. And we have Freya is drawn to the river, uh, the story taking place throughout drought. And it was, it was somewhat surreal to read this, read in the clearing through January in the wake of the fires that have just absolutely torn apart Australia. I wondered whether the last summer, I mean, you've obviously written this before that period, but has the last summer given you any new perspective on the way you might write landscape? Have, have the recent catastrophic fires and then the floods that we've seen, have they have they maybe are they going to change the way we write about the bush perhaps draw a line under a period of of idol that we uh we place on the australian landscape yeah um i mean this is a contemporary setting of this novel you know so uh essentially you know i'm writing about australia today but there's always i'm always more interested in slightly more speculative things like i do i mean uh the technology used at parts in, in the clearing doesn't necessarily exist in the way it functions in the book. Um, and, you know, moving forward, what I'm working on now is, again, you know, includes slightly more speculative elements about the future. So um, it wasn't for me. I mean, it, it, I was almost, almost embarrassed that it was in there. You know, like, I feel bad. Like, I don't want this to be advice. And I want mm. history to show that first this book was written before the fires, and I wasn't trying to use this as a device to kind of heighten tension. But 
but it is an, it is a reality of when you do live in these places. Um, it's based on uh, my brother's house, which is in Warrandyte. He's he fringes a state park, um, and you know, summer we there's always that thing where you're mowing dead grass basically to, to as fuel reduction, and you're making sure you're always raking bark and. You know, you're always sort of wetting the lawn and things. And, and at the height of summer, there's this increased paranoia. Um, and so I wanted to, I knew this had to be set in summer um, for a range of reasons. But um, I also, you know, I, I also wanted to include a real-life kind of element of living in the bush, and that is the fear of bushfires, that constant, that really claustrophobic and so there are no bushfires in this book um, but there is this constant kind of threat or anxiety that sort of heightens um, you know her, her own sort of paranoia uh, and I think to answer the second part of your question you know the, 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 I think no one no writer alive today is not considering um, you know even people run historical fiction no one's not thinking about the fact that we are heading towards an uninhabitable planet. Um, no one's thinking about the way class informs our perception on the urgency of, of, of the climate emergency. That is to say, upper class, upper middle class, people care less because they know that their money will insulate them to some extent from it because they're, they don't live in areas that are necessarily going to be affected. And if they do, they can potentially move. They've got the means of, of, of travel and, and moving and so on and so forth. So there's all sorts of issues around class. There's all sorts of things to unpack from this broader issue of, of um, you know, climate change. And the fires and floods make it a lot more urgent in real terms. But people have been writing about this for, you know, for decades uh, people have been writing about it much more. It's, it seems to be prevalent in, in, you know, most books there's some sort of element of it included. Um, and so, yeah, I think it will ch- continue to change the landscape of fiction. Um, I think it will, if you're writing about it in an Australian context, I think there's this from, you know, this is a major and significant event in our history and this is going to be... Um, it has to be prevalent. It has to be a part of any story you now tell in Australia. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's something I personally am really interested in writing about. Um, my next, the novel I'm currently working on is, again, slightly futuristic. It's, it's set in New Zealand, but there's definitely a, an element of uh, the kind of cross-section of gentrification and climate change and, and, and that sort of thing as a... Um, as subtext for the story as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really good question and something I'm definitely not qualified to answer, but in my view and what I've seen uh, in the fiction landscape of Australia, um, books like Bryony Doyle's The Island Will Sink is mm. overtly a climate novel, but then many, many novels right now are at least acknowledging or um, including an aspect of this issue. So Josh, we've been discussing your writing, an undeniably pleasant way to spend a half an hour, but I want to diverge because you also have a book show and a podcast, it's called On Writing, where you talk to authors about their work. And I don't often get other book talkers, because I say things like book talkers, I don't often get them on. So I, I want to ask you a question that I often ask myself, and that's why. 
Why is it important that we not only read books, but talk about them and try to work them out? I don't think people are tuning in just because it's just for enjoyment. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving a shout out to my um, crappy little podcast uh, <laughs> on the show. Um, it's really, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing because it's like, I mean, it's, it started off as this tiny thing and I've got like, I don't know what's decent, but I feel like I've got a few listeners now and um, for me, you know, it, it was purely a selfish kind of endeavor. I wanted to talk to writers about, because I'm interested in writing, I wanted to ask them questions that other, other interviewers weren't asking on, certainly not on podcasts. Um, on the radio, you know, I, I enjoyed, much more enjoyed um, the conversations because they were, seemed more spontaneous, um, you know, and, and, and at someone, it, it didn't seem quite as rehearsed, whereas on Podcasts, most of the writing podcasts when I started, you know, four or so years ago, um, were out of the US and um, they were quite high production value. And as I said, they were almost performative mm. and they weren't asking the questions I was interested in. But uh, the broader question you asked is why it's important to continue to, to talk about books. And um, I mean, I think, you know, books are still the only format where you can contain huge ideas. In, in a single text and consume it, um, you know, consume these big ideas all at once. And I'm not talking about my kind of silly fiction and, you know, I'm not talking about books as entertainment, I'm talking about books as um, as a representation of the uh, author's ideals about the world. And I think it's important to, because, you know, books don't exist in a vacuum, they they. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that start conversations but not end them, and so I think it's important to to fully understand a book. It's it's important to engage uh, in it with someone else and to sort of take their perception and to kind of you know interrogate certain aspects of the books. And there's things in my books that people have said and that I'm like, you just agree with because you're like you can't say no. That's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the, that's just the beauty of it. Is, is these the dialogues that start around books and these new ideas that form and you've written something you didn't even know was in there and a, a reader's had an experience that you didn't think was possible from this book because that wasn't in your perception, that wasn't what the story was about. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and I and it's funny because I have been doing it less and less because I've been very time poor lately, um, as you can imagine. So... I, have, I haven't been doing it as much, but I, I really, you know, I do it once a month and I really look forward to and I feel very nourished by these conversations I have with different writers. Yeah, I think um, that is probably something we, I mean, you and I can can say this to each other. Like, it is it is that time-consuming nature because we we can't go, I can't go into these conversations and I've listened to your podcast and I know you don't go into those conversations without reading the book and there there is sometimes a temptation and and we you you've probably yourself been sent press releases with with talking points but you really get into it and you really uh, engage with what you were mentioning before the plurality of ideas that are, are brought up when you have that conversation and that's that's something else i love about books i mean and if you want to engage in in josh's podcast which is on writing or if you're listening to here you're obviously engaging with final draft that also between books you can have similar themes in different worlds and that's like that's something you don't get as a human being unless you you read books you you only live in one body in one world and and books give you access to so much more 
Yeah, and the, and the thing about perception is that, you know, like I'm so surprised when I'm convinced I know someone will like a book and they don't, mm. or I'm convinced I know what a book is about and then I read a review or I speak to someone and th- then I realise the book for them is about something completely different. Uh, and that's the magic of it. You're right. It's that, that plurality of, you know, sort of uh, worlds and ideas within the same text. It's, um, yeah, no, it's a pretty special uh, industry to be in. And yeah, it's a really cool kind of kind of concept, the fact that, you know, that books can do that. Mm. I am... Um... I think I think I could probably keep talking about in the clearing for a much longer time. But another great thing that you learn when you do a podcast, and Josh, you've probably figured this out yourself, is that there's only so long that people will listen as well before they're going to want to jump up and just say, all right, shut up, hit pause, and grab the book. I can't spend too long in bookshops for that exact same reason. So I'm, I'm going to let everyone know that I'm speaking with J.P. Pomare. Uh, his new novel is the devastating page-turner called In the Clearing. Uh, Josh is also the host of On Writing, where you can find great interviews with authors, which I know you love because you're listening to Final Draft. So when this episode ends, you can just go and search that, and, and you'll have a new a new podcast to listen to. Josh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on my show uh, and telling me a little bit about your book. No, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's a real pleasure. And I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, um, of the show. That's it for this great conversation with JP Pomare. Josh's latest novel is In the Clearing and it's out now through Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you want to get new Great Conversations from Final Draft every week, just click subscribe and a new one will be delivered each Saturday. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.